Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much for tuning in. We've got a lot to get through this week with a focus on your brilliant questions. There have been so many of them that I'm only going to make a couple of brief reflections before we get going on the questions because I think the questions will in themselves kind of get us all over the place, politically, I mean, in terms of ideas, as well as a kind of structural chaos. Anyway, that in a minute. Before all of those things, just a brief reminder that on Monday, October the 19th, Rock and Roll Politics is live at a socially distanced King's Place, and you can get tickets on the King's Place website. You can also get tickets and join a global audience for the live streaming of that event, and then you can look at it afterwards if you can't make it live. That's also on the King's Place website. So the live streaming and live at King's Place on October the 19th at these events, as those of you who attend will testify, we delve deep, and you know deeper than we have time to do on the podcast because we're there for an evening. And it will be fun as well. And by the way, the next one, October the 19th, it will just be after that EU summit where the fate of Brexit will probably be sealed. So after four years of frenzy and our predictions, for those of you who were at the Rock and Roll Politics gigs a couple of weeks ago about whether there will be a deal or no deal, By the time we all gather together again via the stream or live at King's Place, we should have a better idea where this Brexit saga is moving. It's going to be a big moment. Anyway, that's all to come. For now, just a couple of reflections. One, a familiar theme that you'll have heard a lot of on this podcast. I'm becoming more and more obsessed by it. I think the key question triggered by the pandemic is um, where does power lie in England in particular? Because the other parts of the UK have their own sets of rules, but I suspect the questions will apply in different ways there too. Where does power lie and where should it lie? Those questions are at the heart of this latest nightmare. You know, this the record of the British test and trace system, this world-beating, world-beating, is just a shambolic embarrassment with dangerous consequences. But the repercussions and the post-mortems are so illuminating, or illuminating in in, in, in the sort of weird way they shed no light at all. So you have this situation where there was this enormous cock up where all kinds of thousands and thousands of people who were infected weren't recorded or passed on to the relevant bit of the computerized system so those they had bumped into could also be alerted to self-isolate and all the kind of consequences that arise from that too really the numbers were much higher than anyone assumed and that many could have been affected without being alerted and haven't self-isolated. And then the repercussions, you know, the attempt to blame whatever, Public Health England over in one corner, Dido Harding and her institution, which is soon to take over Public Health England in another, Matt Hancock making his daily appearance in the House of Commons and on the Today programme to say how well it's all going. Who is in charge? Who is responsible? 
Apparently, the fundamental cause of this latest cock-up was an old computer incapable of dealing with the level and scale of data that these tests are providing. Well, who was in charge of the computer system? and was complacent enough over the summer to think, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll be all right. You know, we'll just keep with this old system. There'll only be about three people infected this autumn. I mean, which institution? Who in that institution? There are many highly paid people in them. But above it all, of course, is a government that has, over its four terms since 2010, encouraged fragmentation. Bring in the private sector, Dom. You've got a mate over there. Bring them in, but 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 then I want to be in charge. And, and then there's the health secretary who wants to be in charge. And if it's not public health England, what about NHS England? And there have been so many hundreds of quangos that have been created in recent decades under New Labour as well, who were wary because of their insecurities about having fingerprints on anything themselves, so often moved out to quangos. But that leaves this problem. So ultimately, Johnson pops says, I take responsibility for everything. And of course, he should, and is. But there is a chaotic structure underneath him, which he has all the power to change, but seems incapable of doing it. I mentioned this before, the calls from Blair, Brown, Haig, Jeremy Hunt for a department for testing with a big heavyweight in charge would have made a big difference. A single person feeling accountable, giving near daily updates on how testing was going, pushing the whole system away from complacency and chaos towards order and resilience and obsessive determination to deliver was the way forward they were suggesting it in April May nothing uh, because the chase for daily headlines the tolerance almost ideological welcoming of the fracturing of the delivery agencies is a choice it's not just incompetence but it is a sort of ideological choice which has been very fashionable really since 1979 Margaret Thatcher began the trend famously when she abolished the GLC, the Greater London Council, and all the other metropolitan authorities, all Labour, coincidentally, at the time, and replaced them with unelected quangos. No one really knew who was running these quangos, who to turn to when transport locally became poor and unreliable. And that kind of fashion has remained in place. Which brings me on to Boris Johnson's speech to the party conference, you know, the surreal party conference. By the way, these virtual conferences have really made me think the actual ones, you know, in the olden days when we were allowed to gather, did serve an important function. I was fed up with them and thought they were a complete waste of time. I've been going to them since the late 80s and you know as a kid I loved it I remember the first ones I'll talk about that on another occasion when we've got a bit more time the first ones I went to they felt epic and I was thrilled and excited and spent much of August on holiday looking forward to them by the end I was fed up with them there aren't many party members it's very controlled it's so expensive to go to etc etc but these virtual ones show that they performed an important function 
in the rhythm of politics. Politicians had to frame arguments to please an audience and a wider electorate, and fringe meetings tested those arguments in ways that we're really missing this time. Anyway, Johnson, some of you might have seen it, performing to nobody. Incidentally, as a performance, doing it quite well. It's very difficult just looking into a camera and yet delivering a speech supposedly for an audience. Ed Davey was embarrassing. He sort of tried to do a Churchillian grandeur in front of an empty room. Keir Starmer, never one of life's orators, so it didn't really matter so much for him. I thought it would matter for Johnson because he likes to work a crowd, but it didn't. The delivery was quite good, but the substance was interesting. He used this analogy at one point, and it's, it, it's a good one. He said that he felt he was fine pre-getting the virus, but realised subsequently that because he was overweight, he, he said he was fat, he wasn't fine. He discovered things about himself and his fragility, which has now made him lose 20 pounds. And he said the country was in a similar place. Actually, lots of the country was already worried about the state of the country. But he said there was a sense that the country was doing well. I don't know how all-pervading that sense was, but he had a point, you know, superficially at least, low unemployment. I know the nature of the employment was unreliable and all the rest of it but the statistics suggested a country doing okay and COVID he said has exposed poor infrastructure he mentioned transport and he's absolutely right about that the need for proper social care and he he listed the flaws that have been highlighted and he then pledged to address the lot of them you know, better transport, new environmental policies, uh, better housing, lots of, uh, lots of good houses, good houses, and all the rest of it, without at any point explaining how. And it's always the how question. If you pose the how question and get no answer, you know that quite likely there are no answers. And quite often after these speeches... You get a briefing pack from Number 10 or the Treasury, if it's the Chancellor, explaining how policy announcements that would have got a cheer in normal times were going to be implemented and paid for. Nothing. And this has been a common pattern with Boris Johnson's premiership. Do you remember, I think it was July, was it? Time flies so quickly, I don't know. I think it was July. He went off to Dudley and gave that speech about how he was going to be President Roosevelt. Call me Rooseveltian if you like. And he was going to invest like Roosevelt did with the New Deal, and then re-announced a few policies that hadn't been implemented or paid for. And then on the other side, you have Rishi Sunak, this flavour of the month figure, saying that in the end, his duty is to balance the books. And again, you say, all right, how? George Osborne's great objective, his raison d'etre, his uh, defining project was to balance the books and he tormented the Labour Party under Miliband and Ed Balls for pledging only to halve the deficit in a single parliament. And that's what he did in the end. And I I saw a select committee hearing uh, recently with former chancellors, Philip Hammond, Alistair Darling and George Osborne, and George Osborne at one point said to Alice Stein, look, basically, Alice, I implemented your policy. But the game was to 
promised to balance the books. So highly supportive, willfully gullible newspapers like The Times would then say only the Tories are being responsible compared to the recklessness of a Labour Party pledging only to halve the deficit. And here you have now another layer of weirdness, which is Boris Johnson announcing hugely ambitious programmes of investment. Some of it will be capital spending, but not all. If you're going to improve the NHS and other things, you don't just build hospitals, you have to pay for staff and all the rest of it. That's current spending. And there's Sunak saying his job is to balance the books. He says it in a very kind of emollient tone. Morning, Nick, how are you? And then sounds very concerned for every single human being in the entire world. And by the way, I don't underplay the significance of that communicating and sounding concerned is an important dimension of politics at the top indeed at any level but this is a fundamental contradiction how and this is a government now well it's well into its second year if you take Johnson as being prime minister from last July and of course they've been massively sidetracked by this wretched nightmarish virus and they have failed to perform but the learning of those lessons you would have thought would be a precondition before announcing these hugely ambitious projects a government that promises a world-beating testing system and delivers the chaos that follows has quite a lot of chutzpah to promise this well a kind of promised land of better beautiful houses but not disturbing the the the, the green belt a transport system that actually works properly across the country all these really ambitious things world beating world beating but how and that was not answered in the whole of a well delivered speech so those are a couple of thoughts they're interconnected really the dysfunctionality of England and a speech that recognised that dysfunctionality without saying how the problems would be addressed. And now, over to your questions. I've had loads and loads, so I'm afraid I can't read them all out, but I have got a, quite a significant batch here, so I'm going to give it a go. So if the answers are short, it's to get through the batch that I have chosen, plenty more to come in the weeks to come at least the joy of podcasts is that we have space okay the first one from Matthew Byatt hi Steve first of all I'm not out running I'm sitting in my underwear eating crisps don't hold it against me well I'm thrilled I know most of you listen to this running 10k 5k at uh, kind of world beating speeds to use that phrase of the moment but I am thrilled to hear that some of you are hedonistic enough to combine listening to this with uh, eating crisps virtually naked. It's an image that will stay with me for the rest of this podcast. And Matthew asks, what do you make of Andrew Neil's new GB News, a genuine attempt to bring balance to a London-centric media, or are they just cashing in on culture wars? And also, would you go on if invited to GB News? Well, my, my thought, I don't really know that much about it beyond what I've read that Andrew Neil is setting it up. I think it will be a huge challenge to get big audiences. There are already two rolling news channels. 
where they have identified space, and I think they're right in this, is that the rolling news channels are quite unimaginative as to how they use all that glorious space they've got. I mean, they've got 24 hours every day. And what they tend to do is not allow any discussion to breathe for more than about three minutes and then return to a repetition of the news that they have already read out about five minutes earlier. That is the kind of format. And Sky News is very self-confident. BBC News 24 less so because the BBC is rife with insecurity. So I've noticed if Sky moves away from a live speech or a live event, News 24 do it about two minutes later. Someone's, oh, have you seen Sky? I've left this. So I think there is a space in the market for a different kind of rolling news. If it's biased, they're in trouble because they're not allowed to be under Ofcom rules. But if it can be analysis that is fair over the output with views from the right and left, I think that would fill a space. Even then, I think they'll struggle to build up an audience because there's just a limited appetite for this kind of thing. Would I go on? Yeah, I would, actually. Yeah, if, if uh, I could, I'd go on anything where they, they don't tell you what to say, where you can be given a bit of space to make sense of what's going on from your perspective. And that's, that is an important addition and where I think Andrew Neil and others have got a point that if you are honest about your perspective and put a point accordingly, that can shed light. By dis you can disagree with it, agree with it, but then you start thinking things through. But if they just cram it full of Brexiteer right-wingers, it'll get pretty tedious and even more predictable than the rolling news channels. Anyway, thanks. for. I hope you're having a packet of crisps listening to this. Scott McDonald. Scott writes, uh, it's great to have the podcast. The podcast has been back for quite some time now. Oh, yeah, this was interesting, this question, because it was a big coincidence in it. My question comes in the wake of the resignation of the Advocate General for Scotland, uh, Lord Keane, over the Internal Market Bill, where the government has declared it's breaking the law as if, you know, that's something to be seen almost as a sort of act of machismo and pride. And is being held by partisan active politicians in being held? Are the roles and functions of the law officers and the Lord Chancellor inevitably and dangerously debased? And in asking the question, Scott said, oh, you might be interested in this article in Prospect about the uh, current Lord Chancellor. And yeah, it is an interesting article. It happened to be written by my son. So I emailed Scott and said, did you know that? And he didn't. So what a small world. He recommended an article written by Sun in Prospect. So I've got to answer the question. It's really interesting. I think this role is complex. You sometimes have genuinely independent lawyers occupying the role. And their independence can be for all kinds of reasons, including a self-interested one, of wanting to return to the law at some point in the future. And if you act wholly as a political figure, endorsing, say, the breaking of the law, you're not going to have a future in the law afterwards. But so, so you have people like Cox, the last Attorney General, uh, giving some really tough legal advice to Theresa May and coming out ferociously against the breaking of the international law. But then, uh, you know, you have the current lot who have just bowed willingly to political pressure 
sharing the political convictions that breaking the law is absolutely in line with the law. And then you have others who I think agonised, as in Goldsmith vis-a-vis the war in Iraq. So it is a really interesting question and a highly complex role. Partly depends on the nature of the leader and the person occupying that thorny post. Just putting my glass reading glasses on, actually, you can't see me do this, and that's better because I hardly ever appear in glasses. This is from Sina Fazel, Fazel, Sina Fazel. Dear Steve, thank you. Sina says she's a big fan of the podcast. Thank you very much. One question, what effect does the negative press that some current cabinet ministers receive have on them? Do they read some of the tweets about their House of Commons and media performances? Do they catch the odd episode of Dead Ringers? That's a a question from Sina in Oxford. And I think it's a great question. And the answer, without hesitation, is yes. And they all find it, without exception, deeply upsetting. Actually, there is an exception. I think Ken Clark was wholly indifferent to criticism. He could just brush it off, recognise it as part of the political battle, and continue his engagement in that battle. I can't think of anyone else who was so thick-skinned. And Boris Johnson isn't. I think he finds it deeply hurtful. And you can see, if you look into his eyes, a kind of melancholic look, as well as all the other looks and senses that he is capable of conveying. But they will be reading this stuff and listening to them being mocked. And although it we haven't had any evidence that it is changing the direction of this government at all, it will upset them. These are the public figures, whether the likes of Cummings are upset uh, when he, with some justification, is accused, for example, of blowing up the entire government approach to COVID with his eye test to Barna Castle. Whether he is disturbed by this, I don't know, because he is not a public figure. He hides behind the scenes. I think he might rationalise that he's a revolutionary and revolutionaries get attacked. But in the end, they are proved right. This is what he might think. I don't know. But I wouldn't be surprised if even he, it gets to him sometimes. But I can tell you that cabinet will read it and get nervy and worry and upset. They all do. Dominic Swire. Now, this is an important one for me because early on I pledged to read all the emails out and I said I would read Dominic's out and then I didn't. So I broke a pledge. But I'm pleased he's come back with another question. What can pro-European UK citizens fight for now and who can represent them? He points out that even the Lib Dems uh, seem to be ignoring this massive potential electorate. I'm not expecting to rejoin the EU tomorrow, but for the first time in my life, I feel I've been let down and alienated by all political parties. Is there any hope? Well, Dominic, a great second question. I'm sorry about the first. It was about Jeremy Corbyn and uh, why he uh, was arguing for the extension of Article 50. It's a good question. I think you are without hope in the short term because the Remainers have lost a general election and a referendum. And the political ones in the House of Commons are keeping their heads down for now because they know that by framing an argument in favour of even close ties with the European Union, they will not change anything. They haven't got the numbers in the House of Commons. 
And remember, the Tory parliamentary party, although stirring on several fronts against Johnson, are passionately and almost wholly now Brexiteers. And they signed up to Brexit at the manifesto in the December election. So there's limited space for those who want close ties with Europe to make the case. And I think what is happening is the likes of Starmer, the Lib Dems, and others are biding their time. They are not going to say, now, this is all terrible, because basically they would be telling off the voters. But if it turns out to be as bad as many of us fear it will be, they will then start speaking. Now, I know that sounds like a cowardly sequence, but it might be the only one available to them and an expedient sequence, given that voters so easily cry, oh, you're not listening to us, we're Brexiteers. But if they experience the consequences of Brexit, the space will open up for pro-Europeans. Next one from Al Neil. Hi, Steve. Many of us this summer enjoyed, oh, this is interesting, David Runciman's History of Ideas podcast, particularly the episode about Max Weber and a 1919 lecture in which Weber admires the way that the party machines in Britain and America are a mechanism for selecting the most skillful political leaders by filtering out those not up to it. Do you think the current methods of electing leaders directly from the membership thus bypassing the party machine, has led to the selection of inferior politicians as party leaders. Trump, Johnson, Swinson, Corbyn are named in that category. I think the move towards letting party members elect leaders has been problematic because there's no ideal method. You know, you could argue that if MPs do it, they have a particularly distorted view based on parliamentary performance. But I think it probably becomes closer to getting a leader who meets some of the qualifications of leadership. Forget about ideology for a moment. One of the problems, for example, about Jeremy Corbyn, whatever you thought of his ideas, was that he was so obviously not qualified for leadership. It wasn't his fault. His elevation was the equivalent of someone playing tennis in a park and then being told to get on the centre court at Wimbledon for the final. And obviously, you don't arrive with all the skills required. But the membership didn't really think about that when they elected Jeremy Corbyn. They elected him for other reasons, some of them good ones at the time. But if you don't have those leadly skills, you are in trouble. Whether party machines, as did Baber call them party machines? I mean, that, that's a pretty vague description because party machines take several different forms. And party machines themselves, if it's the headquarters of, say, the Tory party or the Labour party, are not always best qualified to choose leaders or recognise who will be the most successful politicians. And they, of course, are very dependent on the patronage of the leadership or the membership, depending on which party you're talking about. Gary Rutter's email, Gary says, as a 78-year-old young follower of the podcast, yeah, well, that is... um, uh, you know, that's probably Gary, you know, I, I my, the average age of my followers about 23. You know, it's when if you go to a live event, it's like an O2 arena in front of the coolest pop band there is. But it's brilliant because you are obviously youthful in, in spirit. And what's 78 now? I mean, you, you qualify to be the president of the United States any day of the year. 
Do I see any mileage in Labour setting out their stall across Harold Wilsonian lines in a modern context? Wilson wrote about or declared the 13 wasted years of Conservative government. And he put forward a national plan, the white hot heat of the technological revolution, etc. But focused this time on the back of a green economy and technological industrial development, internationalist, updated Keynes-type approach. Yeah, I think that is exactly what will happen, Gary. I'm sure what leaders of the opposition do is, of course, they try and sound new and distinct and fresh and applying their ideas to the current situation. But they also look back for inspiration. And I think Starmer... Well, he cited Wilson in the leadership contest as a model for him, partly about uniting a party. But Wilson, very cleverly in the early 60s, appeared forward-looking and modern in ways and with a plan, in ways that wouldn't alienate the Conservative vote and the Conservative media, but would excite the Labour vote or the potential Labour vote and that's the way I think Starmer will do it with the he will have a plan it will be future the future the future and it will be based around themes of the environment and technological revolutions of now so yeah I think so thank you Anthony Broxton by the way Anthony does I don't know if you on Twitter does the tides of history tweets and they are fantastic they are uh, focusing on labour history, and they just trigger all sorts of things. And in that context, he writes, I had the great pleasure of revisiting Neil Kinnock's 1985 speech at Bournemouth for a piece he wrote in the Critic magazine, which I've since read. You should have a look at it. It's on online. And I was struck by the sheer magnitude of the occasion, both in the build-up, its timing, and eventual delivery. You know the one, obviously, the the, the attack on uh, Militant in Liverpool and the drama, the reaction, Eric Heffer walking off the platform, Derek Hatton shouting from the conference floor, Kinnock standing there wondering how this was going to go down. It got me thinking that in recent years we have had equally as important political moments, but no speech seems to have connected and captured the mood of the country, or at least a certain part of it. Yeah, that's interesting. Perhaps, he says, political speeches only become important over time after they've been seen to change events. The Joe Biden speech to the Democratic Convention this year, which, if he wins, will, of course, acquire greater significance. Having said that, revisiting the press coverage from October 1985, which was when Neil Kinnock made that speech, there was broad agreement that something momentous had been seen and later events only added to its importance. And uh, Anthony says, oh yeah, well if you come to King's Place, Anthony, see you there, it'd be good to have a talk. It's so interesting this. That Kinnock speech was a moment of great significance and it shows by the way to go back to an earlier theme of this podcast the importance of the live event with an audience he could not have done that in front of an empty room staring at a camera and as theatre there has been nothing to compete with it since in British politics but there have been speeches of I think great significance they might not be as memorable as that but if you think about it Blair he didn't spell it out but in 1994 announcing he was scrapping clause four was a moment of symbolism and theatre of its own kind that wacky 
Tory leadership contest where the candidates each made a 10-minute speech at the party conference in Blackpool, I think, where Cameron moved ahead. I'm not saying any of these things were good developments or anything, but they were moments where a speech turned things. So I think speeches are still incredibly important and I think it's one of the things we've lost in this virtually non-virtual party conference season. A speech where you get a sense of the person, the performer, has gone. But I continue to believe that the speech matters and you're right about the Biden one. Um, There are obviously many other competitive outlets these days, most significantly the interview where you can change your fate and arguments through an interview. But that there's a whole podcast to be done on this, and let's do it whenever current events give us the space to do it. There's one here from Andrew, Andrew M, from Andrew M. Do you think that Keir Starmer being a sir will affect his electoral chances? And how have the public reacted more broadly to his leadership? I've seen some stuff from the Conservative report party referring to him expressly as Sir Keir, as if to emphasise the Sir. I'm from the US, so I'd be interested to hear what the word is in the street, so to speak, given current events. And he's, oh, Andrew is looking forward to viewing the next show live online. Told you, it's gone global. It's, you know, everyone in America is watching it. Andrew, thank you for that. It's a good question. And it's going to tell us a lot, this, about the success electorally and just his impact on the electorate as to how this goes. You're absolutely right. Johnson obviously often refers to him as Sir Keir. He never uses it, Keir Starmer, the Sir. But in all the Tory stuff uh, that they put out about him, it's Sir Keir. And what they're trying to do is place him as part of this loathed establishment. And the knighthood, they imply, represents him being part of a North London loyally establishment. Now, it could go that way, in which case Starmer has played things badly to allow them to do that. Or it could go another way, which is that the attempts which will happen by the time of the election for the Conservatives to suggest he's not up to it, he can't be trusted, he can't be relied on, that Sir could become a kind of reassuring title, which reminds people that he has done responsible jobs in the past. Director of Public Prosecutions is a big job, carrying all kinds of responsibilities. That's what he got his knighthood for. So it could go either way, and it would it would tell us a lot which way it goes. If they manage to frame him as a out-of-touch, elitist sir from North London, he's in trouble. If it becomes part of his authoritative weight, he's making his way towards a possible victory. One of the problems Labour leaders have is partly the hostility of the newspapers they struggle to appear prime ministerial. If you look at those who've lost, Ed Miliband, Neil Kinnock, Jeremy Corbyn, lots of people said that they just couldn't imagine him as prime minister, couldn't see him outside number 10. That's not going to be a problem for Starmer. He might have many others. We've discussed some in the podcast and we'll do again. Thank you for that question from the United States. and I hope you join us live on October the 19th. Joe Ruffles, yeah, uh, you almost answered the question I sent a a podcast a week ago. So you note the rivalry between Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak. We were talking about Sunak and Johnson last week. 
And so my specific question, how has this unified control of advisors, you know, the thing where the number 10 and 11 advisors meet regularly, shaped the response to the pandemic? How much independence does Sunak really have? Whatever his style, is the substance of his policy still in lockstep with Cummings and his stable of his advisors? These are good questions. Oh, by the way, Joe says, I always listen, although usually while making dinner instead of running 5K. I'm probably cleaning and chopping broccoli. And Joe lives in Berlin. So this is, we are so global. And that's, I'm so great. So we've got people eating crisps in their underwear and, and Joe cooking what sounds like a beautiful dish in Berlin with broccoli. Uh, are you a vegetarian, Joe? Let me Let me know. But also the question is interesting because this gets to the heart of the dynamic. A lot of people now are writing that that joint committee set up by Cummings of Downing Street advisors and Treasury advisors has had the unintended consequence of giving more power to Sunak because his advisors and the Treasury are driving the agenda. Well, let's see. As I said at the beginning, there is at the moment a contradiction at the heart of this government, and it's a very big one. You have at the one time the Johnson number 10 plans for big investment, building a better Britain, or whatever the slogan is. And then you have Sunak saying, right, we've got this huge deficit now as an immediate response to COVID. But my job in the end is to balance the books. That great treasury culture, sound money culture, as they put it in the treasury, he is absolutely part of. So let's just see what happens in the months to come. I think that dance between number 10 and the treasury is not yet, the shape of it is not yet fully resolved. It will partly depend on whether Johnson manages to reassert his authority in the months to come or whether this deeply damaging narrative about him being basically not up to the detail overwhelmed by events chaotic etc etc in which case you have the smooth sunak a total master of detail becoming even more authoritative and possibly threatening the number 10 operation but in the end the clue will be in the policy agenda as it evolves. Is it Rooseveltian, to quote Johnson, or does it follow a more kind of Osborne-Thatcher path in terms of, to quote, balancing the books, which is a deeply, by the way, it's, a, it's one of many, many phrases that raises so many questions for another time when we get the space. And finally, Ian Jones. And Ian says, oh, yeah, uh, oh, wow, this is another thing. He he's, tells me he wants to put the podcast on a, a WEA uh, list of podcasts. You can certainly do that, Ian, please do. But he also says, I've not been jogging either. I'm doing the weekly clean. Well, the amount of activity going on with this podcast, it's, it's, it's sorting out the productivity of uh, the Western world, the, all the kind of different things that are going on. Anyway, thank you for letting me know what you do. The reason, by the way, there are all these references to what they do is I usually say around now what the email address is in case some of you would like to email and haven't done so before. So, here it is. So by now, if you've been running 5K, you should be back home. 
because this has gone on a bit longer than usual. You might well, if you're running 10K, still be on it unless you're very fit. If you're having a packet of crisps, I think you should be okay and ready to make a note of this. If you're cutting broccoli, just stop for a moment, please. And if you're cleaning the house, just if you could just put the hoover, hoover down. And here is the email address. Let me just um, find it here and I will uh, read it out, but I'll spell it out. Steve Rick 14 at iCloud.com. And if you're still on the 10K, I think I haven't written that down. I've got to carry on running. I read it out at about 42 minutes in. So when you get back, if you could uh, make a note of it and ask a question or raise a point, you, you'll get the address at 42 minutes in. And if you haven't finished your crisps or are naked, please get a pen from somewhere and make a note because I'm going to spell it out. So Steve Rick, S-T-E-V-E-R-I-C, then the number 1414 at iCloud.com. Please get in touch. Please come along if you're in London at King's Place on Monday, October the 19th and get a ticket via the website. Or if you're part of this global audience, America, Berlin, Japan, you can get a ticket for the live stream. Thanks so much for listening this time. Brilliant questions. Sorry I didn't read them all out. More to come next week. And let's all get together next week. God knows where we'll be then. But it's been great having this dialogue today. Thank you. Thank you.